Okay, Luke chapter 13. Let's start just with a reading. We'll read from verse 10 to verse 17 today. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. And Lord, as we read this morning, we pray that it would flood light upon the beauty of our Savior Jesus Christ, and also the the deadness of religious exercise apart from a living relationship to Christ. Lord, we, we ask that you'd make Jesus more beautiful to us today and that we turn away from anything, including religion, if it stops us from getting to know our Savior. And so, Lord, we pray this in His holy name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to a really a wonderful story. It's a story of Jesus' love and compassion, and his power towards this poor, suffering woman who had been in bondage for 18 years to Satan. And as we do, the very first thing I notice is the example of this woman. Did you notice where this suffering, bent-over, crippled woman is on the Sabbath day? She's in the synagogue. She's worshiping God. Now, don't you suppose that she had asked God in prayer to heal her? This affliction had been going on for 18 long years. I'm sure that she must have prayed and asked the Lord to heal her. But so far the Lord had not seen fit to do so. So she had been struggling on with this suffering year after year after year. And in spite of that, she's here in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship the Lord. Now don't you imagine she must have been pretty self-conscious? I mean, the kids are probably staring at her and pointing at her, and she, you know, she she knows that she's she's disfigured, she's she's crippled, she stands out like a sore thumb in this public assembly. There's a lot of reasons for her not to come and worship God on that day. She's self-conscious. I imagine there was a lot of pain involved. Being bent over, can you imagine being bent over like this? For 18 years, and you can never straighten up. I, I wonder how she slept at night, you know. I mean, the, it's horrible to consider just what she had gone through. The pain of this affliction. It would have been hard for her to walk to the synagogue. Because she's like this, trying to walk. And once she got there, she couldn't see what's going on. Because all she can see is the ground in front of her. But I really love the faithfulness of this poor, suffering Jewish woman, this daughter of Abraham, 
that she was there on that day, and for all we know, she was there every Sabbath, worshiping the Lord. A lot of people, when they pray and God doesn't do what they want them to do, get angry at God. And they say, Lord, if this is how you're going to treat someone who worships you, then I want nothing to do with you. Forget it. I don't believe in you anymore. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to serve you. I'm gone. But here we see just the exact opposite. A faithful worshiper of the Lord. Now, the story here is Jesus is no longer outdoors teaching this enormous multitude. That's where he was from all of chapter 12 and verses 1 to 9 of chapter 13. He's outdoors. He's got so many people that he's speaking to that they're stepping on each other. It's like being at a San Francisco Giants game, you know, 60,000 people crowding as close as they can to get to Jesus. Well, now, now he's on the Sabbath day and he's gone into the synagogue. He's indoors. And the scripture says that he's teaching. And as he's teaching, he notices somebody. He notices this poor, bent-over woman. And he calls her over to him. And then... He says to her, woman, you're freed from your sickness. And then reaching down, he touches her, and immediately she does what she couldn't do for 18 years. She straightens up in front of the sight of all of the people there. Immediately she does that. Now, sometimes when we read about a miracle in the Bible, it's a really good picture of salvation. Like, for example, Lazarus. When he is uh, resurrected, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and life comes back into that dead body. That's a wonderful picture of our new birth, where we're regenerated and born again, and we receive new life from God. Or when Jesus takes a leper, who is um, despised, and to look at him, people would just look the other way because of the the filthy, horrible condition of that man's appearance, uh, that also becomes a picture of salvation by the cleansing of and the defilements of our sin that Jesus washes away and makes us new. Well, I think in this story, we can see several different parallels between this healing and salvation. And this isn't the main thrust of our message. This is just an inter introduction to get you thinking about the miracle. But one of the things we see about this this healing here is that Satan had held her captive, right? It says that she was bent over because of a spirit, an evil spirit, that somehow was oppressing this woman and making it impossible for her to straighten up. So Satan was working in her life, keeping her in bondage for 18 years. And that's exactly the same with the sinner, isn't it? In 2 Timothy 2.26, the Bible says that he holds people captive to do his will. People are captive to the devil. They may not know it. Most, most of the time they don't. But they are being held captive doing the devil's will rather than God's will. And over uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, it speaks about the prince of the power of the air who is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's just another name for lost people the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, is actively working in them so that they're being held captive. They're in his kingdom. He's holding sway over them. Another thing we see about this miracle is that she's bent over, crippled. It's humanly impossible for her to stand up erect. She, 
Lord knows she's tried over and over and over, wanting to be able to stand up, and she can't. She's bent over double, and all she can see is her feet and the ground beneath her. And that's, that's a very close parallel, too, between the sinner's condition, because he's crippled spiritually, he's unable to raise himself up, he, it's humanly impossible for him to rectify his situation, and all he can see are the vain things of the world. He can't lift up his eyes and behold his God and see his glory. He's been blinded by the God of this world, and he can't see the glory of, the God, of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then again, another parallel is that in this particular healing, Jesus takes the initiative. Did you notice that? The woman wasn't asking Jesus to heal her. She doesn't say a thing, according to the narrative. Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden he notices her. He takes the initiative to call her to himself. He speaks the word of command, Woman, you are freed from this sickness. And then he lays his hand on the woman. It's all Jesus. He sees her, he calls her, he speaks, and he lays his hand on her, and she's immediately healed. And it's exactly the same way in salvation. The Lord is always first. We are always the responder. He's always the initiator. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. The Bible says that when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. So He is the initiator. He is the one that goes after us and brings us like that lost sheep. He puts us on His neck and He brings us back into the fold. We're not sheep looking for the shepherd. The shepherd comes looking for us and He restores us. A fourth parallel is that she was healed when Jesus touched her. And we are saved through virtue of union with Christ. We need a personal touch from Jesus Christ to become his children. He doesn't save us at a distance. The Holy Spirit unites us to the living Lord. And by virtue of that union with the living Lord Jesus Christ, we are born again and we are saved from sin. It's like we're, we're these dead branches lying on the ground and the Holy Spirit takes up these dead branches and grafts them into the living tree so that the life of the tree pulses through those branches and leaves start bearing and fruit starts showing up because there's life now in the branch. So we need touch. We need union with Christ. And then a fifth parallel was that she was healed instantly. It didn't take a matter of minutes or hours or days. And that's a miracle in and of itself because if she hasn't used these back and neck muscles for 18 years, they've atrophied by now. How was she able just to instantly stand erect? I mean, that baffles me. <laughs> so it was an instantaneous healing by Jesus Christ. And even though we probably can't pinpoint that time in our own lives. There was a time, there was an instant, in which you went from death to life. Now we look back and we can, we, we can see the general time frame. For me, it was a, a year period of time. It was 1979 for me. I know that the Lord did it then. I couldn't tell you the day, couldn't even tell you the month. But I knew that He was working mightily in my life and I've been a changed person since 1979. But regeneration happens in an instant because there is a point when you are dead and then there's a point when he makes you alive and you begin changing and fruit begins to show. Now, we come to verse 14 and it begins with that little three-letter word, but. 
but the synagogue official, which clues us in that Luke is taking us in a new direction. Verses 10 to 13 are all about the wonderful, loving compassion of Jesus Christ to heal this poor, suffering woman. But that's not the end of the story. That's not even the big picture. There's, there's something else Luke wants us to see in this whole scenario. And it has to do with this synagogue official. And so he begins it with that word of contrast. We've got this beautiful, loving picture of Jesus, but the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began speaking in response. Now, this synagogue official is a really good picture for us of someone who's devoted to a dead religion. And Jesus and the people that follow him, like this woman, is a wonderful picture of a living relationship with God. So as we work our way through the passage, I want you just to think in terms of, okay, here's the synagogue official, what is he like? And then here's this woman, and here's Christ, and those that follow Christ, what are they like? And you're going to see a completely different view of life. We're going to compare those two. That's why we're calling dead religion versus living relationship. Now, Luke has been showing this mounting tension all the way through his gospel, uh, the mounting tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. And so it's no surprise when we come here, is it, to see that this tension is in full, there, there's this collision taking place between Jesus and this synagogue official. Let me just show you how Luke has been causing us to see this mounting tension. It starts all the way back in chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, Jesus healed somebody else on the Sabbath day. It was a man with a withered hand. And when he was done, in Luke 6.11... It says, but they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. So way back in chapter, chapter 6, these religious leaders have decided that Jesus has got to go. They've got to do something to stop him. He was messing with their religion. He wasn't playing the rules the way they thought the rules needed to be played. There, there was... No healing on the Sabbath, but Jesus is, it seems like intentionally, breaking these particular rules. And then when you go over to chapter 7, and look at verse 34, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this was the common criticism of Jesus by the religious elite of that day. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He's a friend of tax collectors, which are the most despised people in Israel of that day, and sinners. That's who this guy is. So they're, they're heaping up criticism upon him. And then when we come to chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So he's even prophesying to his disciples that it's the religious leaders who are going to be the ones responsible for his execution. The elders, chief priests, and scribes. Then look over at chapter 11, verse 15. Some of them, that is some of the religious leaders, said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, another name for Satan. 
the ruler of the demons. In other words, the reason Jesus can cast out those demons is because Satan lives in him. He can do it by the power of Satan. And then we come to chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. And this is an extended uh, rebuke of Jesus. Six times he says, Woe upon you Pharisees, woe upon you lawyers. He exposes them for their self-righteousness. And at the very end of that whole scenario, there in verse 53 of Luke 11, it says, When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. And then we saw last week that Jesus basically says to the religious people of his day, unless you repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So there, there is this definite tension between Jesus and how he follows his father and the religious people of his day and how they followed their religion. There's this huge tension going on. So we're not surprised at all, aren't we, when we come to chapter 13 and we watch the interplay between the synagogue official and Jesus Christ. So this story, I don't think, is just about healing. There's something else going on here. I think we're seeing the contrast between two types of people. A person devoted to a dead religion and someone who's been made alive by God and has a living relationship with their father. So let's look at it from that vantage point this morning. And as I was reading through and studying this, I saw four different contrasts. So one of them, one of them is bondage or freedom. Okay, notice this woman who is a very religious Jew, devout Jew, attending the synagogue on the Sabbath day in spite of her illness. But notice her position before she came into contact with Jesus Christ. Okay, notice verse 16. Jesus said, This woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 Notice this, long years. He inserts that word. And you, you know that those are long years. Should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So he mentions that she's been bound by Satan and she has this bond placed upon her. Shouldn't she be released, untied, set free from this bondage to Satan that she's been experiencing for 18 long years? So she was in Satan's grip. Satan had her where he wanted her. He was causing her untold suffering. Day after day after day, year after year, she couldn't break free from it. And I think we see in this a picture of those people who are devoted to a particular religion but are still captives to Satan. And there are lots of people like that. I was a person like that. Uh, I grew up as a religious person, attending church, trying to follow the rules of my religion. I went to um, a religious school for first and second grade. And so this was partly my life, growing up, trying to be righteous before God, trying to do more good things than bad things so that God would ultimately accept me, until I finally discovered by reading the Bible that God doesn't even work that way. He's not interested in me trying to be 
a little bit better in my own flesh than I was before so that he would accept me. No, he gives me his very own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus through faith in his son. So it's a sad picture of religious people who are bereft of the life of God. They're, they're still dead in their sins, even though they're doing their best to follow a religious system, keep the rules, obey, observe the rituals of that system, but they're still cut off and, and they're not in a living relationship with God the Father. Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. What, what we need is not this punctilious observance of rules and rituals. What we need is a touch from Jesus Christ to come over and lay his hands on us for us to be united with him. And when that takes place, life takes place. New life. And that's what this woman experienced. Brand new life because Jesus came and touched her. So this woman here is in bondage before Jesus comes into her life. But we notice that as soon as Jesus touched her, there's, there's this freedom. Verse 12, woman, he says, you are freed from your sickness. And so, this is the picture of that person who's been brought into union with Jesus. That's really what salvation's all about. It's not about you turning over a new leaf or trying harder or becoming a better person on the outside. It's got nothing to do with that. There's lots of people like that who are still lost. It's about you being connected to Christ so that his life flows into you and your heart is changed. And you become a new person on the inside. And that starts to show itself up on the outside by you producing fruit. But it starts inside with this operation, a divine heavenly operation where God does a surgery on your heart. He takes out that old heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. <clears throat> and his spirit comes in and he makes you new. And you're free for the first time. The Lord is able to free us from those those sins that trap us and ensnare us, he's able to give you liberty and victory from those sins. Oh, so we see it's either bondage or freedom. The difference between a dead religion or a living relationship comes down to bondage or freedom. It also comes down to um, anger or joy. Notice, okay, notice the synagogue official's reaction. Verse 14. But the synagogue official, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd, he's indignant. And you understand that word indignant? It means righteous anger. Or in his case, it's actually self-righteous anger. This synagogue official was completely devoted to the rules that had been passed down from the religious elite of Israel about the Sabbath. So they had all kinds of rules that are not in the Bible. The Bible simply says rest, don't do any work. Well, they, had, they couldn't keep it that simple, so they'd come up with hundreds and hundreds of different things you could or could not do on the Sabbath day. And if anybody broke one of those, the synagogue official got angry. He got mad. Now, he's angry not because he hates this woman and wants her to keep suffering. He's angry because Jesus healed her on the wrong day of the week. He says, come back any other day and you can get healed, but just not this one. And isn't it, to me it strikes me a little, a little bit funny, that he would consider Jesus working by taking his hand and putting it on her head. That was work. 
you know. But but when you're legalistic, you tend to think in terms of things like that. Instead of being overjoyed that this woman who had been in so much torment for 18 years could now stand up and glorify God, you'd think a synagogue official would be more spiritual than this, wouldn't you? That he'd be just, just ecstatic that she she's free, you know. But instead, he, he said, He's scolding the crowd. You guys don't do this anymore. Come back on another day and let Jesus heal you then, but just not on the Sabbath day. Oh my goodness. You know, joy really can't be found in anything else other than a living relationship with God. We try to find joy in lots of areas. Todd was sharing that with us a few weeks ago. But the scripture says rejoice where? In the Lord. Not in your money, or your job, or your spouse even, or your friends, or your home, or your car, or whatever it else. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Scripture says, in your presence is fullness of joy. That's where it's to be found. And we, we look in all the wrong places, and we keep thinking that, oh, if I just had that job, or if I got that grade, or if that person were my friend, or if I looked that beautiful, or whatever it is, then I'd have joy. And it's not to be found there. Real joy, lasting joy, eternal joy is to be found in Christ and our relationship to Him. And that's what we see happening in this woman's life. Look at verse 13. It says, She was made erect again, and she began glorifying God. She's filled with joy. Because of what the Lord has done for. And in verse 17, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by Jesus, by him. So he's angry, they're filled with joy. Complete opposites, because he's devoted to a religious system, and they have been. They've come into contact with the living Christ and they've seen his work. They've seen his miraculous power. And it made me think, if someone were to show up in our church and, and they told us, you know, the Lord has just set me free. I was addicted to crystal meth and he set me free and I've been saved. Or I, I was an alcoholic for 18 years and the Lord set me free from that. Would we be overjoyed for that person? Or would we be saying, but brother, why are you still smoking cigarettes? Or sister, why are you still dressing that way? Don't you know you have to you know, dress modestly as we determine modesty? I mean, we, we, can, we can major on the, the little things and be indignant because people don't, come up to our standard of morality, even though the Lord has done this beautiful, wonderful thing by setting them free from a life of sin and from these habits, these addictions. So the, the Lord is going to be faithful to sanctify his people. And he often doesn't do all of the sanctification right up front. He, he takes his time with it over a lifetime. So we need to just rejoice where we see God working. We need to rejoice where we see Christ at work. So, there's another real contrast. And then there's a third one, and that's hypocrisy or genuineness. 
Hypocrisy goes, it's a mark of a dead religion. Genuineness is a mark of a living relationship to him. Look at verse 15. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites. A hypocrite is a pretender. Someone who wears a mask. He pretends to be something that he isn't. He's calling them hypocrites. And he tells us why. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And of course they did. They were, they're not going to let their ox or their donkey uh, go without water for a full day. So they wouldn't tie them, lead them to the stall. And he says, look, here's a woman who's been tied up by the devil. Not for one day, for 18 years. She's made in the image of God. She's not an animal. She's a daughter of Abraham. And yet, you'll take your animal, and you'll untie your animal and lead him away to water him, but you won't let me on the Sabbath day take this woman, this daughter of Abraham, and untie her and free her from Satan's grip? He says, you hypocrites! You pretend to be so righteous and religious, but look, you're doing the very thing that you're condemning me for, only you're doing a worse thing, because you're more interested in an animal than a person. So he nails them, doesn't he? He just nails these guys to the wall. And dead religion will lead you to hypocrisy because religion is interested in externals. How things look. How you look to other people. Are you keeping the rules or not? And even as Christians, we have our own set of rules that are not in the Bible. <laughs> They're unspoken, usually. But if someone crosses them, they, they find out, oh, that, I broke a rule there. I shouldn't have done that. So dead religion focuses on the externals. And I've got to keep up with these rules, these expectations of these people in order to be accepted by them. But a living relationship with Christ, when that's in place, you find genuineness. At least the, the freedom to be genuine and real. Do you know why? Do you know why if you have a living relationship you, you're free to be genuine now? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. And the Lord loves you and accepts you in all of your mess and the, the crud in your life and the garbage because He's not seeing you in yourself. He's seeing you in Christ. And when He sees you in Christ He sees perfection. He sees beauty. And He takes the righteousness of Jesus, and he just covers all of that filth, and you, you're beautiful. You're clothed with this white, beautiful garment in Christ. So, yes, in ourselves, there's all kinds of faults. There's much sin that we need to deal with and overcome. But we can be genuine because we're accepted by God in Christ. And if, you're, if you know that you're completely accepted by God, why does it matter to have the acceptance of these other people that are just hypocritical anyway? It shouldn't matter to us. Of course it does. And that's one of our problems, is that we're man-pleasers, and that's something that we need to deal with. But we, we ought not let that so stifle us and put us in a straitjacket. We, we can be genuine, we can be free, we can be honest. Or at least we, we ought to be able to be honest with each other about our situation and what we're struggling with and where we're at because we're justified in Christ through faith in His Son. So hypocrisy and genuineness. And then there's one more. 
that I see here, and that's callousness or compassion. Callousness, the synagogue official. He doesn't seem to have much deep care or concern about this woman at all, does he? He's not rejoicing that she's healed. He's not happy about it. He's just mad that she broke the rule, or Jesus, actually Jesus broke the rule, and he's mad about that. He's scolding the people there in the synagogue that day. He valued rules over relationships. He valued animals over people. All of his priorities are mixed up and out of whack. Because he's following a dead religion, he's not in touch with God. Do you see that? And that's what Jesus, um, that's what we see him emphasizing throughout this passage. He's uncaring, he's indifferent to the suffering of this woman. And it's really sad, I think, that people who are devoted to particular religion, the, the thing that becomes obsessing and the focus becomes the rules and the rituals of that particular system rather than the needs of hurting people. I don't know if you have any experience in this regard. But the rules and keeping the rules, that's the all-important thing. So if you happen to be, let's say you happen to be a religious Muslim, then for you, the thing that's really important is to make sure that you're on your prayer mat five times a day facing Mecca because that's one of the rules that you must do in order to be a righteous Muslim. If you were a, a Jew a religious Jew, what's important to you is keeping those Old Testament laws, the laws of Moses. If you happen to be a, a religious Jehovah's Witness, what's important is making that quota. You have an, a certain number of hours every week that you're supposed to be out knocking on doors and you got to make sure you get that quota in. And these are the things that become paramount in these systems of religion. It's a sad thing because here we find him completely indifferent about the suffering of this woman, only concerned about breaking the rules. What do we see in Jesus's? This, I love this about Christ. Who does Jesus notice in the synagogue that day? Does he notice the synagogue official? Doesn't say so. Does he notice the rich that are there that day? Does he notice all the really important, popular good-looking people. He notices this deformed old Jewish woman who's been suffering for 18 years. And it would have been hard to notice her because she's bent over. She's shorter than everybody else. It's going to be hard to spot her in that crowd. But Jesus notices the one who has the greatest need in that assembly that day. Don't you love that about your Lord? That He's not indifferent to suffering. He's not indifferent to our needs. That He spots it. He sees it. And in this case, he did more than just see it. He called her over. He, he made her a public spectacle. This disfigured woman, you come on up to the front in front of all these people. Because he knows what he's about to do. She's not going to be disfigured anymore. Jesus is going to take care of that for her. And then he speaks the word of command. Woman, you are freed from this sickness. And he gently lays his hands, uh, probably on that part of her back that was hunched over. And all of a sudden things start straightening up. Compassion. Jesus, filled with loving tenderness and compassion. That's who our Savior is. And everyone who follows Him should have that mark in their life. 
instead of being so focused and obsessed with rules and rituals of our religion, let's be, let's be focused on people. Needs of hurting people. And let's, let's do something like our Lord did. Let's do something to help hurting people, suffering people. When we look at, at these, these four areas, a dead religion can be marked by bondage, anger, hypocrisy, and callousness. A living touch from Jesus Christ brings freedom, joy, genuineness, compassion. So, this morning, what about you? Look at these, these traits here. Is it true that your life is characterized by freedom? Freedom from Satan's grip upon your life? Or by bondage? What about anger or joy? What would mostly characterize your life? Indignant that somebody would dare to break a, a, a rule in your home or in your life or your presence? Or joy whenever you see Jesus at work in someone's life? What characterizes you? What about this one? Hypocrisy, pretending to be somebody that you're not, or just really a genuine person, honest, open, because you know you're accepted in Christ? What about this one? Callous or compassionate? What's true about you? See, this is where we want to be in this side. We want to have this living relationship to Christ, and this only comes through union to Him. Are, are you, have you been joined to the living Son of God? Do you know that Christ is your life? Do you know that? Have you experienced? I'm not talking about knowing a set of intellectual truths. I'm talking about experiencing the very life of Christ, where He becomes your life. He becomes your all in all. He transforms you. That's what every one of us need. We need this. We need a living relationship to Him. Lord, I, I pray that You would work among us today that, first of all, that each one of us would experience that life from You. If there are those this morning that have never been born again, Lord, would You work in them? Would You cause them to be born again? Would, would You give us the joy of hearing reports of someone experiencing this new heart that You give? And Lord... Many of us have been born again a long time, for years and years. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to experience freedom from Jesus and joy in Christ and be able to be genuine because we are justified in Him. And, Lord, that Your compassion would live through us. That the, the one person that we might notice in a crowd is that person that needs help that needs love, and that we might be drawn to them like Christ was. So Lord, we pray all of this in your precious and holy name. Amen.